Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Wednesday, April 29th, 2009, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. This is the first in a series of podcasts that are devoted to the recent H1N1 influenza epidemic, or what is rapidly being concerned about becoming a pandemic, and we will be speaking with some international experts and thought leaders to help provide some much-needed information to the members of SCCM and others who will be involved in caring for patients who may be uh, developing these problems. Today, our guest is Dr. Randy S. Wax. He's speaking to us from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Dr. Wax trained in critical care medicine at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's currently an intensivist at the Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and he's an assistant professor of medicine at the Faculty of Medicine, University of Toronto. He has multiple areas of expertise, and like um, most of the guests in this series, they combine disaster management and specifically focusing on these issues of influenza. Uh, importantly for my preparation, he was one of the co-authors on an article published in 2006 called Development of a Triage Protocol for Critical Care During an Influenza Pandemic, and he is also currently the vice chair of the Fundamental Disaster Management Committee for the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Thank you so much, Dr. Wax, for being with us today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Um, well, um, you know, we've all been uh, riveted to the news and, and helping to deal with this at the local level, but I thought here uh, at the national or international level, trying to put together some experience that people like yourself have dealing, I guess, with SARS, uh, as well as your expertise in this, you might be able to take some time and uh, share with us some of your thoughts about what uh, your thoughts have been around the events that have unfolded in the last few days. For example, have you been uh, particularly surprised that this happened? And what has been your impression of the way the communication has occurred with the various healthcare agencies? Well, first, I'm not surprised that this has happened, and I, I know that um, uh, public health authorities have been, um, you know, increasingly stating their their worry that there would be um, an influenza uh, pandemic, um, and uh, you know, nobody know, was going to be able to predict when that was going to happen. Uh, and uh, I could tell you that. Uh, uh, I'm surprised at the timing, but I think whether it happened now or in five years, just the fact that it's actually happening uh, uh, now is surprising. It's it's interesting. The, the notion of a pandemic, meaning that uh, we have a new influenza strain that's um, spreading quickly around the world, uh, it's not a surprise that this is happening. Um, it's important to understand that um, the the visions that we often associate with the word pandemic are uh, almost synonymous with the idea of you know the end of the world that uh, society is going to break down and we're going to, everything's going to be overwhelmed and that uh, you know we have a true disaster. So it's important to distinguish between a a pandemic spread of a of a new influenza strain 
uh, and uh, complete breakdown of our uh, ability to uh, function as a society. And thus far, the, you know, the evidence is that, uh, in fact, people are coping actually quite well with what's happening. And so the, the two issues from what I can glean from looking at this are, one is how easily that the virus is transmitted from person to person, and then two is how much damage is caused to the host when it's in the person. You want to comment on some of those issues? Sure. Well, you know, it's, um, it's always a problem in influenza season um, about how easy it is for influenza be, to be spread from person to person. And I don't think, uh, based on the information we have now, that this new H1N1 strain is necessarily any different than um, the influenza we deal with every year. And it's important to remember that, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of people die every influenza season uh, related to uh, spread of influenza. And many, many more people get sick from influenza and end up missing work uh, or uh, otherwise feeling unwell. So um, it, it, it's very easy to, to spread influenza through contact and droplet spread mechanisms. Um, and uh, I don't think this is any different. Um, I think one of our problems is that, uh, uh, that some of the basic public health measures, such as staying home when you're sick, washing hands, um, good uh, sneeze and cough uh, etiquette, you know, coughing into your sleeve. Um, these are things that are very important to prevent spread. And I, uh, I, I'm worried that people until now haven't been taking these messages seriously. Um, and um, I hope that uh, one of the lessons that will be learned um, uh, around the world uh, by the general public is that uh, when public health officials are, you know, stating that we need to be worried about influenza, they're going to understand that um, it's not uh, a bunch of people, um, you know, uh, trying to generate uh, fear unnecessarily. It's really trying to counsel the general public that uh, they have a major part to play in reducing the uh, likelihood of uh, other people getting infected uh, from influenza. And that applies whether it's our seasonal influenza, and that applies now uh, with this particular H1N1 outbreak. Um, I'd, I'd like to, if I could, let you speak for a few moments about one of your obvious areas of expertise in terms of critical care triage, because this is something that I'm dealing with. Uh, one of the, I work at a hospital in New York City, and we're having to assess what our critical care resources are multiple times a day, given the current situation. And um, I just sort of wanted to ask you an open-ended uh, opportunity to discuss what it was like being on a panel talking about that. Um, how do you come up with the structured approach like you did uh, to deal with some of these, I guess they become ethical issues about what to do when you don't have, when you're running up against the limits of your critical care system's ability to handle patients. So if you'd like to take a few minutes to speak about that, that would be terrific. Well, in, in Ontario, when we were dealing with the aftermath of SARS, um, you know, we, we realized very quickly that uh, it really doesn't take much to overwhelm your critical care resources. Um, you know, th we're, we're a very uh, fortunate uh, country in Canada. We've got a publicly funded health care system. We have a lot of resources for our population. And yet um, SARS, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things, was actually a relatively small crisis, um, ended up causing tremendous you know, economic damage to our society and also overwhelmed our critical care system fairly quickly. Um, and what a lot of people may not realize is that it wasn't 
necessarily the number of patients that were overwhelming our system. It was the combination of a surge of patients, but also the fact that in many cases, um, our healthcare workers were, were sick or were under quarantine. Um, and that was a particular challenge during SARS. So what we recognize is that, um, you know, there's, there's really three main categories that you need to think about when you're dealing with um, triage and uh, surge capacity when you're faced with um, more patients than you can handle. Um, and those three things are stuff. These are things like ventilators and other equipment. Space, where are you going to put all these patients? Um, and the most important, though, is staff. And so um, one of the things we realized is that we really need to have a, a, a better way of um, handling surge capacity. So the first First important issue is that you want to be able to set up a system so that when you do have more patients um, than you can normally handle, you need to first try to increase your capacity. So um, looking at those three aspects, stuff, space, and staff, you need to start planning ahead to make sure that you can um, ramp up your ICU capacity and your mechanical ventilation uh, capacity uh, as much as possible. And, and we can talk in a bit about sort of some strategies to try to do that. But with regards to triage, when you reach the point where you've done everything possible to try to increase your capacity and you can't do it anymore because of limitations in space, stuff, or staff, then you have to be faced with some very difficult decisions. And you are going to have to start uh, taking patients who you normally would be treating very aggressively with full mechanical ventilation and ICU support and in some cases, you may have to either um, deny those patients access to those services uh, or um, taking patients who are currently in the intensive care unit on mechanical ventilation and removing them from the intensive care unit. And uh, so if I could, I was just going to jump in because I was reading your paper just last night where you focused in on, uh, and I'll let you go on, but, but it becomes, uh, as you point out in your paper multiple times, it becomes sort of like being in a war situation, right? Well, that's right. And the key issue is that um, you need to, when you have limited resources lim uh, to be able to provide care to critically ill patients, you really have to focus those resources on the patients that are most likely to benefit. And there are certainly many situations um, in intensive care units around the world where we devote very expensive resources to patients who, in all likelihood, are going to die, whether they get those life support uh, services or not in an intensive care unit. And, you know, the ethics of dealing with that sort of situation in sort of routine day-to-day -day care are, are a different story compared to what you're dealing with in a pandemic. And the reason is that if you can provide critical care services to patients who are going to die anyways, that may be expensive, that may be uh, subjecting patients to um, uncomfortable uh, moments as they're being aggressively cared for that might not have always been appropriate. But having said that, doing that for that particular patient may reflect, you know, the patient's or family wishes. Um, and as long as other patients aren't being harmed by that decision, um, you know, that's something you can deal with on an individual patient level. Um, but when you get to the point where you have too many patients and not enough ventilators, um, if you make a mistake and you give a ventilator to a patient who almost certainly was going to die and you deny a ventilator to someone else who could have benefited and could have survived uh, by being given a ventilator, then you've made a mistake. And in a pandemic situation or in any surge situation where 
there just aren't enough resources for all the patients you'd like to treat, um, you have to start making difficult decisions about um, who's going to get the, the resources that you have and who isn't. And you, and you pointed out in the paper, and then I, I just want to make a couple other comments, is that the role of the intensivist becomes you're, you're caring for the population as a whole. You emphasize that a couple times in your, in your document. That's right. And, you know, one of the concepts, um, you know, in medical ethics is the idea of distributive justice. In other words, that you really try to do what's fair for um, the population, society as a whole. And for the most part, um, you know, in North America, uh, we're very lucky in that we do have a lot of medical resources to be able to provide to patients. And whenever possible, as an intensivist, we're always advocating for individual patients, and that's, and that's a, a reasonable thing to do. Um, in a situation where we just don't have enough to provide to everybody who wants critical care services, um, we then have to start thinking beyond the individual patient, and we have to start thinking about what's best for society. And, uh, you know, the philosophers and ethicists will uh, argue about this uh, quite a bit, uh, but the reality is that if, if you face a pandemic situation where we just our, our critical care services are overwhelmed, whether you want to argue about the philosophy or not, the bottom line is that if you're the frontline um, person working in the intensive care unit as a physician or a nurse or a respiratory therapist uh, or other professional, um, you, bottom line is you have to make decisions. And so what we really tried to do in, in this paper is come up with um, – a, a clear process, an objective process for making these sorts of difficult decisions using the best evidence we had available at the time. And so let me just for the listeners go over two parts of your paper, which I thought were particularly helpful to me, was um, I'm looking on page 1378, figure one of, of this article published in the um, Canadian Medical uh, Association Journal there in uh, 2006. Um, you gave people different colors. So green was that there was no significant organ failure, and those people just defer or discharge. They're fine. They're not going to be in the ICU. Uh, yellow was if they had a SOFA score, and you, you use the SOFA score, the sequential organ failure uh, assessment, of 8 to 11 gave them an intermediate priority, which was sort of on the higher end, but not the highest end. And then finally, uh, or not finally, but next you said if they were red, which was sort of your highest priority in this pandemic triage setting, if they had a SOFA score actually less than or equal to seven or single organ failure, which reemphasizes the point that you just made, that it's a little bit different. This is somebody who has something wrong, but not wrong enough that they are not highly likely to die. Um, and then you point here blue, or you said in the manuscript also black, this is somebody that has an exclusion criteria met, or their SOFA score is so high that you're not going to have them come into the unit. Did I, did I get that sort of big picture right? That's right. And, and really, the, the red patients are the highest priority for access to critical care services and mechanical ventilation. And that's because they have the best chance of surviving and improving by given, being given mechanical ventilation. Yellow patients who are sicker, um, if you have the resources available and if you've treated all the red patients and you still have some ventilators and ICU beds left, then it's reasonable to try to treat these yellow patients that they still have enough of a chance of improving with a ventilator and surviving that it's worth trying if you can. 
the green patients are the ones that are so well that really they don't need to be in an ICU anyways. And so, you know, you shouldn't even be considering them for critical care services. The blue patients are the biggest challenge. These are the ones who um, either have exclusion criteria based on um, overwhelming comorbidity or uh, patients who have a SOFA score greater than 11 um, on initial admission to the intensive care unit or, or consideration of admission to the intensive care unit. It's important to understand that if you triage somebody to blue, that doesn't mean that they're not being cared for. You, you provide them the best medical care you can with the resources you have, which may include medications, IV fluids, oxygen, depending on what's available. And it's very important that if these patients are going to die, that you provide them with appropriate palliative care. So it's not that you're not caring for patients, it's just you're not providing a ventilator because you think that those patients are going to die, regardless of what you do, whether you give them a ventilator or not. Um, and uh, what's important to realize is that for these particular patients, um, this assessment may be taking place when they come to the ICU, but ideally should really be taking place either in the emergency department with the help of the intensivist or um, happening when you're reassessing a patient who's getting sicker um, on the wards and having to consider them for the ICU. You really should be making that decision ideally even before they make it into the intensive care unit. And I just wanted to mention some of the exclusion criteria that I, I found fascinating and I think are really important to share with the members. So you talked about severe trauma, severe burns, if they had any two of the following, age greater than 60, greater than 40% uh, surface area. Um, you mentioned cardiac arrest if it was unwitnessed or if it was recurrent. Uh, I'm not reading all of them, but just some of the ones that I thought were important. So metastatic malignant disease, um, if they had a severe baseline cognitive impairment, end-stage uh, heart failure, you mentioned, or high-grade liver dysfunction, age greater than 85, and that must have been controversial when you were coming up with that, right? Absolutely. Um, and then elective palliative surgery, which I guess refers back to, I guess, sort of a metastatic issue. Uh, would you want to make some comments when your group was coming up with some of these exclusion criteria? Sure. Well, I'll tell you what was easier and what was harder. So what was easier... Um, in determining sort of what's a blue patient, um, these patients who would not be provided access to critical care, when we looked at the SOFA score greater than 11, and uh, there's an online appendix that supplements the paper, which talks about a reassessment at 48 hours and 120 hours, that you not only look for a SOFA score greater than 11, but you also look for patients who aren't improving, and those are patients who might be removed from a ventilator. That was a bit easier to determine because we were using the best evidence available to predict who is, is highly unlikely to benefit from a ventilator and who's going to die regardless of the ventilator, regardless of the illness that you're dealing with. And it was important to realize that the SOFA score system that we chose was actually used for generic uh, ICU patients because you, you realize that patients who are in the ICU may be there with pandemic influenza or they might, be, might be there for something completely different. And you need to compare apples and apples when you're making decisions about patients. So regardless of why a patient might need ICU services, uh, the SOFA score system ideally will apply regardless of their underlying diagnosis. Right. That so was an important point, I thought, from reading your paper, just to reiterate what you said, is that when you're in this triage mode, it's, it's the whole pool is looked at as a group, whether or not they are already definitively diagnosed with the influenza. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Okay. Sorry. Patients will still have myocardial infarctions and cardiac arrests and um, you know, uh, bowel leaks and all the other things that usually bring them to the intensive care unit, and they need to be compared alongside the patients with pandemic influenza. Uh, and you said you had some other specific comments regarding the exclusion criteria? 
That's correct. Well, as I said, you know, making decisions based on um, extent of organ failure was a lot easier. Determining exclusion criteria for saying absolutely these patients should not be considered for critical care services, that was much more controversial because um, some of the things that I think people in general, society in general, would accept as being reasonable. So somebody, for example, who has um, uh, recurrent cardiac arrest, who clearly isn't going to survive regardless of what you do, most people would think that's quite reasonable. Um, where you start getting into controversy, though, are things, for example, like uh, severe baseline cognitive impairment was one of our exclusion criteria. Well, depending on who you are, you know, if you're a healthcare worker, you know, your perception of what severe cognitive impairment might be different than your, if you're a loved one of somebody who's been in a nursing home with dementia for a while and has interacted with them maybe on a limited level but on an important level for your family. So that's one of those types of things that's controversial. Age certainly is very controversial. And we had a lot of heated discussion about, you know, should there be even, should there even be an absolute age cutoff? Or if there is one, what should it be? Um, and it's important to realize that for these kinds of triage protocols to be useful, they need to be discussed in advance um, at a broad level, not just within the healthcare community, but also with society in general. And you need to make sure that your um, local and state and federal governments really understand um, what the idea of this sort of triage scheme, and they need to uh, buy into it and support it because people are going to have to make very difficult decisions in the setting of a, uh, an overwhelming pandemic, uh, and they need to feel supported uh, uh, from a medical legal standpoint that when they make decisions, they're going to be supported and they're not in the aftermath of the pandemic and the recovery phase, that they're not going to be um, you know, treated unfairly by the legal system for making difficult decisions um, during the pandemic. Um, it's also important that society in general has a chance to review um, these ideas, um, the, the whole concept of triage, so that, uh, you know, there's no perfect triage scheme, but at the end of the day, you need people to accept it. What was very interesting when we released this paper, uh, we were really worried about the kind of response we were going to get from the public and that, you know, the expectations, I think, in general of the healthcare community is very high. And in many cases, most patients feel that they should get, you know, everything. And uh, we were really surprised that the public response was actually quite supportive. And I think the public understands that in this kind of overwhelming crisis of a pandemic where the resources are overwhelmed, that we do have to make these kinds of difficult decisions. And I think in general, the public prefers the idea of having some kind of objective system in place to make these decisions rather than having, you know, random application of decision-making about access to critical care services that's more subject to, you know, eco economic and political influences that are, you know, sort of going on behind the scenes. For the most part, the public prefers the idea of an objective public scheme that people have had a chance to review in advance so that when you do have to apply it, um, it it's actually acceptable to the public. Let me, uh, to close this section, this is just a question I had for you. Um, you obviously must have read this as well in the editorial talking about it. Uh, about your paper, they talk about this guy, uh, this document, "Stand on Guard for Thee," which was a ethics document produced by the um, Pandemic Influenza Working Group at the University of Toronto's Joint Center for Bioethics. And the editorialist 
I was a little confused by this, but they didn't, they, they were discussing your ethical approach to this, which seemed pretty reasonable to me. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on, on that. They were talking about developing a national ethical framework. And I wasn't sure that certainly in the United States, it's, it's not easy to get everybody to agree on these kinds of things. Well, well here's the situation. I, I think it's um, when we've got time, hopefully, hopefully this isn't a pandemic that we're dealing with right now that will completely overwhelm our critical care resources. Um, and uh, if, it, if, if it isn't time for that kind of uh, disaster for us to deal with, then the good news is hopefully we'll have some more time to be able to discuss sort of the philosophical and ethical rationale for um, creating a triage scheme. Um, it's very difficult when you get people who um, spend their time discussing philosophy and ethics together with a group of clinicians because um, my experience with uh, many ethicists and philosophers is that they love to discuss a lot of issues at length for a very long time and they're used to the idea that there is no right answer. That everybody will leave questions. the table and that there won't be consensus because it was very confusing to me and I think your point is what you're trying to make now is I as a practicing clinician was extremely comfortable looking at your inclusion and exclusion criteria. It made sense to me. It fit. It really did fit. And I was actually more confused with the philosophical discussion. And so your point is that uh, as intensivists, we're pretty comfortable making decisions without all of the data, but a decision has to be made. Is that right? That's right. And, you know, the reality is most intensivists around the world are making these decisions every day. Um, and it's really not a question of whether we triage at all. It's a question of the extent to which we have to triage. And so clearly the, um, the element of, uh, of triage and the number of patients who will not get access to the intensive care unit will obviously be dramatically uh, higher in the setting of a pandemic. Um, and uh, so I think most intensivists get it. They realize that we are going to be the ones on the front line having to make these difficult decisions. And I think most intensivists would agree that they would much rather have a publicly acceptable objective scheme for making these decisions um, rather than feeling the burden of making these these decisions on their own with inadequate information um, and not being sure what their colleague down the street is doing. And I think from a fairness standpoint, it shouldn't really matter where a patient ends up, whether the ambulance takes them to hospital A or hospital B. Um, you would hate to have a situation where, you know, if they take you to hospital A down the street, you're going to get access to a ventilator. And if they take you to hospital B down the street, you don't get access. I mean, that's not really the way we want to function in a pandemic, uh, having to second-guess our decisions. So um, I think the ethical uh, public discussion and philosophical discussion about the idea of a triage scheme is incredibly important, and it should be on an ongoing dialogue. Having said that, um, what we're dealing with right now with this new H1N1 outbreak, this could have happened six months ago or a year ago or two years ago. And I can tell you that I feel much better knowing that at least it may, this may not be a perfect triage scheme, but at least we have something to work with that if two weeks from now we're suddenly overwhelmed with patients requiring ventilators, at least I know I can pull this document out and I can pull out this, this triage algorithm, and at least I've got something to work with to make decisions. And it can always be tweaked later. But as clinicians, it was very important to have something on paper that we could pull out if we needed it, and then, you know, work from there to see if we can improve it. 
Um, we are doing further studies on this triage scheme uh, and looking at, for example, for example, inter-rater reliability. Do people make the same decisions with regards to scoring and assessment uh, and assignment to different uh, triage uh, colors or categories? And uh, you know, we, it, this does potentially need some tweaking. But for now, we've got something that we can work with, and that makes me sleep better at night. I, I thought we'd. Um we're sort of heading towards the end of the podcast here, but I wanted to let you talk for a few minutes about what advice you might give to ICU teams to reduce their risk uh, during the situation. And again, you, you mentioned that that was an issue during the SARS epidemic. Well, absolutely. And the, and the first piece of advice I would give to people working in ICUs around the world um, is that it's very important to be um, aggressive in your decision-making regarding isolation. Whether we're dealing with this sort of outbreak or not, anybody who comes into the intensive care unit who has a fever and a respiratory illness, especially if I have to stand at the foot of the bed, you know, less than a foot away from their face and intubate them, A, these patients who've got febrile respiratory illness should be in isolation um, until you're able to sort out what's, what's causing it, and B, if I'm standing there that close to the patient and intubating them, I should always have been wearing appropriate personal protective equipment to make sure that I don't get sick. Because I can tell you, if, if that patient has an infectious disease and they're sick enough to come into the intensive care unit, I don't want to catch what they have. And so whether we're dealing with this uh, H1N1 outbreak or whether we get, we get through this in the next few weeks or months, however long it takes, and we're back to the usual uh, business, we should have been practicing these precautions all the time. So it's, this is a good opportunity to think carefully about not only what are we doing now, but what should we be doing all the time to make sure that we're as safe as possible. Um, second piece of advice I would give um, people who work in the intensive care unit is to make sure they know how to use personal protective equipment, make sure you know how to put it on and take it off safely. Most of the contamination that people get actually occurs when you take off the equipment rather than during any procedures you're going to perform. So make sure that you're trained appropriately. And in particular, if you are going to use an N95 respirator, make sure that you've actually been fit tested for this. Although I do want to jump in because I've been trying to read a lot about this. Um, the official recommendations, at least as far as I can tell, for this particular influenza, do not you do not have to necessarily wear the N95 mask, and that uh, it's a droplet issue, not necessarily like uh, tuberculosis where it's an airborne. Uh, but from what I understand in reading these recent review articles, the idea is if things get out of hand and you have them, it's not bad to wear them. Well. It, it so first of all, we don't really understand everything we need to about this particular virus. So it's important to understand that in general, influenza is contact spread and droplet spread, and it's not spread by airborne uh, mechanisms. Having said that, one of the lessons we learned in SARS is that the um, distinction between droplet spread and airborne spread isn't clearly black and white. Oh. And there are certain situations where diseases that might normally be spread by droplet may have an opportunity to spread by an airborne mechanism. And intensivists need to understand that those situations are typically associated with the kinds of things that we do every day. High-risk procedures like bag mask ventilation, non-invasive ventilation, high-flow oxygen delivery, intubation. During our SARS outbreak, these were the, th the situations where um, we think there was aerosolization of virus and we had spread through an airborne mechanism. Um, now, we don't know if that's really going to happen with this influenza strain, and I hope it isn't. But what I can tell you is that um, if you're performing high-risk procedures where you have high likelihood of aerosolizing droplets, 
um, and turning it into a very um, you know, short-distance uh, zone of potential airborne spread, it would certainly be reasonable to uh, think about having an N95 available if you have it. And what I can tell you is that as we learn more about this virus, uh, you know, it, this may all settle down and we may not have any issues, but we need to be prepared for the next problem that's going to happen. And so this is a good opportunity to remind everybody to understand how to use their personal protective equipment properly and to make sure that they are fit tested. And even if we don't need it for this problem, we may need it for the next, and now's the time to get fit tested and make sure you know your equipment, not to, not to wait for something else to happen. And I thought I'd uh, conclude the podcast by letting you uh, give out any suggestions that you might have for resources that might be helpful to ICU teams in dealing uh, dealing with this crisis. Uh, well, education is incredibly important in all of this, and so I think we all have to, t- to take the time to become more educated about um, not only uh, this particular strain of influenza, but issues related to biohazard critical care and potentially dealing with um, surge issues if we do reach a situation where our critical care services are overwhelmed. So there's a few resources I'd suggest. Um, First of all, um, the uh, Fundamental Disaster Management course uh, from the Society uh, I think is a great uh, resource uh, for learning more about, um, you know, infectious outbreaks, epidemics, and how to deal with uh, um, mass critical care uh, issues. And so uh, the textbook is available, uh, and uh, the society has uh, actually put a number of relevant chapters um, online, uh, and uh, you can actually download for free. Um, so I encourage uh, members to look at the um, homepage uh, of SCCM, and uh, there's actually a link, and you can click on it, and you can get various disaster resources. And if you like, uh, you can download those chapters out of the uh, 2009 edition of the uh, Fundamental Disaster Management textbook. So those are very helpful. There's other resources that are actually available um, on the SCCM website, and I also encourage you to look at uh, the link that uh, connects to the um, a, a supplement uh, that was uh, produced by the American College of Chess Physicians that uh, details a lot of issues related to um, surge planning uh, in uh, a, a crisis in a pandemic. Um, so I'd encourage you to look at that. The other thing I encourage you to do is don't just think about your own education, but as far as surge planning is concerned, if we truly do get overwhelmed to the point where we have to increase the number of ventilators uh, in our facilities, it's important to realize that we actually need to have staff who can help us manage an excess number of patients. So also start thinking about how you can educate uh, the other uh, folks in your hospital who don't normally work in an intensive care unit but might be forced to help you, either because you're overwhelmed with patients or because some of your ICU staff are sick and you need to backfill them with other staff from the hospital. So the other uh, society resource that I think is very helpful is the uh, Fundamental fundamental Critical Care Support, or the FCCS course. And so if you haven't taught at your facility, um, as part of your planning, it may be worthwhile thinking about how you can bring some of your uh, physicians and uh, other healthcare uh, staff who don't normally work into the ICU to help them with um, some basic ICU training so that they can help you uh, if you need it. And the last resource uh, I encourage people to look at is a uh, very uh, interesting um, internet-based news group called ProMed that actually uh, is usually frequented by uh, infectious disease, infection control people, and public health people. But it's, uh, it's actually very interesting because you get updates um, at least daily with uh, reports uh, about what's happening in the world 
and it's a moderated group, so you get very useful information about what's happening uh, so that you can actually be at least one or two steps ahead uh, of the general media in terms of uh, what's happening around the world. So there's a lot of various resources available uh, to help you get prepared. We've been speaking today with Dr. Randy S. Wax. He is currently an intensivist at the Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and he's an assistant professor of medicine at the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto, and he is an international expert on both uh, disaster management, uh, surge capacity issues, as well as specifically influenza, and we're very grateful that he could take some time to help us uh, make it through this challenging time, uh, healthcare, international healthcare crisis. Thank you so much, Randy, for being with us today. My pleasure. This concludes our podcast. We plan to record further podcasts focusing on the H1N1 influenza epidemic. Please stay tuned. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Infectious diseases are the second leading cause of death worldwide. Many new and re-emerging microbial threats, such as severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, SARS, avian influenza virus, and West Nile fever continually challenge intensive care providers. Attend the 8th Summer Conference in Intensive Care Medicine to learn about ICU infection in an era of multi-resistance in Chicago, Illinois, USA, from June 4th to 6th, 2009, to become knowledgeable on the most effective infection control strategies available. Learn more by visiting www.sccm.org. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.